There is a Woody Allen movie called Love and Death, and a character at the end of this movie boldly declares this. He says, if it turns out that there is a God, I don't think he is evil. I think the worst thing that you could say about him is that he is an underachiever. I don't think he's evil, but he's probably an underachiever. Think about that for a moment. In many ways, this is a profound insight. This perception that God is not evil, merely an underachiever, certainly we can identify with that on some level, right? That the expectations we have for a loving and powerful God do not match the reality of the world that we observe around us. There is an abundance of suffering. There is death and injustice in this world. And it certainly suggests that perhaps God is not up to the task. And from this perspective, God would seem to be a well-meaning underachiever. And I think that it is at precisely this point that our scriptures this morning want to challenge us about our expectations of God and about our understanding of who we are. Because rather than painting a picture of a God who promises to meet our expectations... We see a God who is concerned about this world in ways that far exceed our wildest expectations. Frankly, that's what the season of Epiphany is all about. The season after the birth of Christ, his incarnation, and before we get to Lent. It's called Epiphany, and it, it literally means, aha, I see it. We have had an Epiphany about who Jesus truly is, and we see who God truly is, and we realize that our God is not a God who meets our expectations. Frankly, our expectations are far too unambitious for a loving and powerful God. No, this is a God who challenges our expectations, and he refines them according to his love and his mercy. So this morning, we're going to be in two different places. Um, We're going to be in Isaiah 42, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3. If you have a Bible, or if you um, have your Bible on your phone, or or a tablet, or or whatever, um, you can pull it out. I want you to to see that this is God's Word speaking, not me, and I want you to discern um, along with me what God might be saying to us. Isaiah 42 and Matthew chapter 3, and let's take a look at this expectation-shattering God. We'll start in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42. We have here a description of the Lord's servant. These chapters in Isaiah are speaking to God's people who are in exile, far from their homeland, probably in poverty, under foreign rule, and they're wondering, what has happened? This God is not meeting our expectations. And God is promising to send them a servant, He will send them a servant. And this servant will bring life-changing renewal to God's people. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will establish justice on the earth. He will be a covenant for the people. 
He will be a light to the nations. He'll give sight to the blind. He will free the prisoners. He will lift up the oppressed. It would seem that finally God is promising to send the one who will redeem Israel. He's sending the one who will free her from oppression, who will establish her to her rightful place of glory among the nations. But it's interesting, right? The servant is not quite who we might expect. He's not this driven type A leader with a loud and clear voice. He's not a bold, strong man out in front that gains the attention and has the charisma to win over the people. No. What does it say there in verse 2? God's servant will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. He will not make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And yet he will faithfully bring forth justice. These are not the words used to describe a bold and revolutionary leader, but they're words that are describing a gentle and lowly servant. Indeed, here in Isaiah, things do not appear as we would expect them to. We see something similar in Matthew chapter 3, this baptism of Jesus, a shattering of expectations. So here we have John. Remember John? We read about him in Advent. He's Jesus' cousin. He's out in the wilderness of Judea by the Jordan River. He's baptizing faithful Israelites who would come out to him. He's baptizing them in repentance, right? They're repenting for their sins and the sin of their nation by symbolically being washed in water so that they might be prepared for the Messiah. And John is saying, someone is coming, someone who is mightier than I, someone whose sandals I am not worthy to even untie, someone who will baptize you not with water like I'm doing, but with fire and with the Holy Spirit. And so the people are repenting. And they're submitting to John's baptism and they're waiting. And here in our text this morning, the wait is over. That someone has come. Jesus arrives on the scene with John. And he says, John, will you baptize me? And John says, no. Jesus, no. I know who you are. You should baptize me. And Jesus says something quite interesting. He, he says, um, it's quite curious. He says, no, John, you must baptize me so that we might fulfill all righteousness. You must baptize me so that we might fulfill all righteousness. What does this mean? Well, those who are righteous are those who act according to the will of God. Those who are walking in God's will, who are following him, those are the righteous ones. And so in order to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus and John must act according to the Father's will. And so it would seem that it is the will of God that his only begotten Son, powerful Messiah, Savior to the world, would submit to John's baptism. Does Jesus need to repent? No. Israel, we need to repent. Jesus has no need for repentance. He has 
no sin. Again, our expectations are shattered. How could it be that God's chosen Messiah would come down in such humility? Not only is he born right in a, in a, in a stable and laid in a manger, a feeding trough, but now he, here he is identifying with these sinful people and taking part in their baptism. Imagine if you were in the crowd that day at the Jordan River. We have this account of the heavens opening, right, and a dove descending, but there's no evidence in Scripture that anyone saw that except for Jesus and maybe John. But if you were standing there in the crowds, Jesus was just another Israelite coming to be baptized by John, and you probably would not have thought twice about it. The Messiah was there in their midst, and they didn't give it a second thought because he did not meet their expectations. And I think that's why these texts are challenging. Too often we want a Savior who will bring justice by making his people more powerful. We want a Savior who will bring justice by fixing others. And we see this. This isn't simply a Christian phenomenon. This is a people phenomenon. This has happened throughout history as people looking for a Savior that will lift up them at the expense of others. Germany had their Hitler. France had their Napoleon. Rome had her emperors. The church certainly has participated in this sort of dynamic time off, time on and time off throughout history, choosing frequently power and authority over humility and lowliness. And even Israel herself In the Old Testament, when God does not meet Israel's expectations, they go looking somewhere else. Babylon, save us. Egypt, save us. Ephraim, save us. God's not doing what he should be doing. He's not up to the task. But Jesus did not come to give us authority in this world. He did not come to give us authority. Power. He came to save us from our sins and set a broken world to rights. The problem is what we think that means. Too often we think that setting the world to rights means fixing other people. Okay? This world will be right as soon as the wicked people are fixed, are taken care of. And then we can be lifted up and everything will be okay. To use Isaiah's imagery... I would say that too often we see ourselves as oaks that simply need some water so that we can grow stronger, or raging infernos that simply need more fuel so we can burn more brightly. But friends, that's not reality. The reality is we are bruised and broken reeds fluttering in the wind. We are smoldering wicks Just a breath of air from going out. The reality is, God doesn't meet our expectations because we are not who we think we are. We're not who we think we are, and therefore, we think God's getting it wrong. But the reality is, our expectations are wrong because we're bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. And if God is going to set this world to rights, He must set his people right with himself first. And so Jesus comes 
and he's baptized by John. He could have come in power, and, and we believe he will. He'll come in power. It'll be unmistakable one day. But first, he had to come in humility. He had to identify with his people. So he had to take part in the baptism that John was offering. He's not a savior, at least not yet, who comes from a place of power to restore power. No. He's a savior who identifies with us in our weakness so that he can pull us out of our desperation, so that he can offer us the salvation we need. And what we see, this humility in Jesus' baptism is merely a preview of his humility on the cross. The King of kings and Lord of lords is enthroned with, with three nails and a crown of thorns hanging on a cross outside of Jerusalem. He died so that our bruises may be healed, so that our smoldering wick may be flamed into a gently burning flame. And in our baptism, and in the baptisms we're going to see this morning, we are invited, just as Jesus identified with us, we are now invited to identify with Christ, that we might be found to be his people and in him, so that one day when God does finally set this world to rights, when he establishes his kingdom once and for all on this earth, we may take part in that and enjoy this age that is to come with no more sin and no more death and no more suffering, but life everlasting in the glory of God. And so, friends, we are but bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. And we need the salvation of a Christ who can identify with us and restore us. Two things I want us to take home from this today. The overall theme is, is this. Jesus doesn't meet our expectations because our expectations are wrong. They're self-centered and they're sin-driven. And so sometimes, I think, we look for our salvation in worldly power, worldly authority, worldly restoration. And sometimes God gives us that, and he expects us to use it responsibly, and sometimes he doesn't. But the point is, God's power is not validated in whether we have wealth, health, and success or not. We can't say, oh, God is powerful because he's made me successful. We can't say God is powerful because we won this election or because we lost this election. We can't say God is a weak because we didn't win something. God's power is not validated in court victories. God's power is validated when his people go out and meet those who are broken, those who are bruised, those who are smoldering, and bring them the love of Christ. And friends, I think too often we fail to realize that. We cannot bring Christ to others unless we can identify with them first. And that is our calling. And secondly, and finally, some of you are here this morning and you're bruised. You're smoldering. You've been bruised by life. Maybe you've been bruised by the church. And your expectation is that God and especially the church and his people expect only the best 
only the holiest. And you've either rejected that expectation or it's left you in great despair. But friends, that expectation is wrong. God identifies with the bruised. He identifies with the broken. And he calls them and he says, come, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come and be restored to me. Your sin be forgiven, your shame wiped away. And know the power of my Savior, of my servant, of my Messiah, your Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it's my prayer that you would realize that this morning. That you would come to the waters of baptism, not that you're necessarily getting baptized, but that you would come and see and meet Christ and identify with him and have that new life that only comes through our Savior.